0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 2. Last week, I began the summary of the Book of Judges, in that episode covering the first three chapters of the book, giving a high level overview of the narrative, which covered the Israelites conquering the remaining territory, a revisiting of Joshua's death, and the bits found in those chapters about the first three judges. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm kicking off with the next judge, Deborah, who's found in Chapter 4. And with that, let's get started. I've touched on the prophetess Deborah before, so this will end up being an even higher-level view. But before I get to her, a little background. Judges 3 wraps up with Shamgar as a judge. All we know about him is the single sentence at the end of the chapter. The beginning of chapter 4 tells us what happened next. And it's a little confusing. I'll let the text do the telling. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that presents a little problem. According to chapter 3, after Ehud became a judge, the land had a rest for 80 years. The next judge mentioned in the text is Shamgar, but we're not told how long he was in that position, or what happened after that. My feeling, and it's little more than speculation, is that he was a judge during the 80 years of rest, and potentially put down a relatively minor incident with the Philistines, one where only 600 were killed. And I say only as it's a rather small number when compared to the tens of thousands of casualties in other battles. I'll cover these judges in as much depth as possible when I circle back to that part of the text. There's another potential explanation, which I'll get to later in the episode. Back in chapter 4, after Ehud died and the Israelites reverted to their sinful ways, they were overtaken by the Canaanite king Jabin who was said to have reigned from Hazer. He had a general named in the text, and instead of butchering his name, just know that it was given, but really isn't that important. What is more important is that these Philistine troops were equipped with 900 iron chariots, and they ruled over the Israelites for 20 years. Probably towards the end of this score of years, the Israelite people cried out to God for help. And that's when Deborah entered the picture. The text tells us that, at that time, Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel. What we're not told at this point is how Deborah came to be a judge, and are left to interpret that it was far into the rule of King Jabin of Canaan. What happened next, I've recounted a few times, so for now, the quick overview. Deborah would sit under the palm tree bearing her name, which was located between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites would come to her for judgment. At some point, she summoned Barak from Kadesh in Naphtali, and told him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go take position at Mount Tabor, bringing ten thousand from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. I will draw out Jabin's general and army to meet you with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak tells her he'll only do it if she comes along. Deborah agrees, and the pair head back to Barak's hometown of Kadesh. From here, they form the army of 10,000, made up of troops from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, just as they were told. The Canaanites hear of the approaching Israelites. Their general forms up his troops along with his 900 iron chariots. Barak, with the encouragement of Deborah, and followed by the troops, heads down for Mount Tabor. When the Canaanites see the approaching Israelites, according to the text, God threw them into a panic. So much mayhem that the Canaanite general dismounted his chariot and fled on foot. The battle ended when all of the Canaanite army fell by the sword, with no one surviving, except, perhaps, for the fleeing general. Then a little background. Heber the Kenite had separated from the other Kenites, meaning the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. This Heber encamped near Kadesh, Barak's hometown. Apparently, Heber had no conflict with the Canaanite king Jabin. The Canaanite general fled to Heber's wife's tent, probably thinking he could hide there in an ally's tent until it was safe to go back to his home. Heber's wife, Yael, came out to meet the general and told him he could hide in their encampment. She took him into her tent and covered him with a rug. In a scene that plays out in my head like a low-budget, not-quite-funny-enough sitcom, the general asked her for some water. Yael opened a skin of milk, giving him some to drink. Yum. Warm milk stored in an animal skin. After drinking the milk, he's recovered by the rock. Then the general told her to stand at the entrance of the tent, and if anybody comes and asks her, is anyone here? She should say, no. Seems like a simple enough plan. But she was going to have none of it. Instead, Yael killed the general with a tent peg. So much for the peace between Heber's family and the king of Canaan. Just after this, as Barak came into the encampment in search of the Canaanite general, Yael showed him what she had done. But the Israelites weren't quite free of the Canaanite king. Instead, they began to resist him more and more, until eventually they defeated him. The assumption is that their being ruled by this Canaanite king ended after the 20 years mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. And that's Judges 4. Nearly the entirety of Judges 5 is known as the Song of Deborah. There's a bit of research along with textual analysis built around this song, and I'll get into that when I cover what's known about Deborah. For now, just know that it's a hymn celebrating the victory over the Canaanites. And like I mentioned, it's almost the entire chapter. Almost. The very last sentence, and the only part that's not in the hymn, tells us that after this victory, the land had rest for 40 years. Of course, meaning that's it for chapter 5. After this 40-year period, the Israelites did as expected and predicted and fell into their recurrent ways. They would come to be controlled by the Midianites for seven years. What we're told next seems to indicate that the Midianites were more oppressive than previous occupiers. From the text, Because of the Midianites, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their fields, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and an unnamed people of the east would come up against them. These oppressors encamped against the Israelites and destroyed the produce of the land, as far as the region of Gaza. But, It just wasn't the produce they destroyed, also the livestock, such as sheep, oxen, and donkeys. So many oppressors would arrive that they were said to be as thick as locusts, so many that neither they nor their camels could be counted. They would bring their tents, camp out, and lay waste to the land. Because of this, Israel was greatly impoverished and cried out to the Lord for help. There's one little tidbit in here. And that's that this oppression spread as far as Gaza, implying a couple of things. First, that it was broader, maybe broader than the previous oppressors' control. Further implying that the previous oppressors didn't control all of the tribe's territory. Think back to what I mentioned about Ehud and Shelmgar. The oppression then may have been more localized. The other implication is that with each successive oppression, the manner and magnitude was worse than the previous. It was ramping up. Do note that neither of these thoughts are explicitly stated in the text, just implied, and therefore subject to interpretation. I'll have more on this in the deeper dive. Back in the text, the Israelites did what they normally did, and cried out to God for help. He sent Gideon, and unlike many of the previous judges, we're given a great deal of detail in the narrative about how this came to pass. The angel of the Lord sat under the oak at Uphrah, which belonged to Joash, Gideon's father. This was as Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress. All of this in preparation to hide this wheat from the Midianites, likely to be hidden in the mountains' caves in other strongholds. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon was polite and inquisitive, answering, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. God answered, but didn't directly address his query, saying, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. Gideon, in a vein similar to Moses, when he was living in exile in Midian, of all ironic places, Gideon asked God, But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. At least he didn't rely on his inability to speak clearly. God answered Gideon, I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. Gideon still wasn't buying it, answering, If now I have found favor with you, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Do not depart from here until I come to you. And bring out my present and set it before you. God answered, I will stay until you return. And I'm going to pause here for a second to point something out. Gideon was confident enough to ask God to wait on him. This shouldn't be surprising, as earlier in the passage, we're told that God picked Gideon because he was a mighty warrior. While he was uncertain of himself, the angel of the Lord did not have the same doubt. Back in the text, Gideon went into his house and prepared a kid, meaning a baby goat. He also prepared unleavened cakes. He then put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, and brought them out to the angel of the Lord who was still under the yoke. Then God told him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth. Gideon did as he was told the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and cakes. After they were burnt up, the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. It was only after this that Gideon fully realized the figure under the tree was truly God. He then cried out, fearful of what was going to happen next. Help me, Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abezerites. And this warrants another pause to explain a few things before moving on. From the way he acted, it was apparent Gideon knew the Pentateuch enough to know that God told Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. This is why he was afraid he was about to die. Also throughout the passage, the text usually reads the angel of the Lord, not simply God. Like I usually do, I'm paraphrasing for clarity. There are a couple of spots in the actual text where the phrase Angel of Thee is omitted. Most biblical scholars interpret the Angel of the Lord as God himself. Most, but not all, but a vast majority. In other cases, like in Exodus 23 and 33, we're told God will send an angel, but not God himself. All of this a distinction with a difference. The takeaway from this passage is that Gideon did look upon God and lived. But this thought isn't without its own set of issues. John 1 verse 18 reads that, No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. How you thread that theological needle is up to you. As for me, I'm thinking that perhaps Gideon was an early witness to Jesus, or perhaps something got lost in the translation of John. Both of these are close to the tact that the NIV takes where John 1 reads, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. All of this straying a bit too theological for my comfort. Back in Judges 6, in that very night, God came to Gideon, telling him to take your father's bull, the second bull, the one that's seven years old, and use the bull to pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father, and cut down the sacred pole that is beside it. A footnote in the New Revised Standard Version tells us that the sacred pole is sometimes called the Asherah. Also, while we've been able to deduce that Gideon was well-versed in the Pentateuch, we now know that this was despite his father, and potentially the rest of his family, worshipping various Canaanite deities. God tells Gideon to build an altar on top of the stronghold. This stronghold was likely where Gideon was storing the grain he had been beating out in the beginning of the story. As an aside, beating out wheat is akin to threshing it. It's very labor-intensive, consuming about a quarter of the manual labor associated with the process of planting, harvesting, threshing, and everything else that goes along with the consumption of grain. When I circle back, I'll try to remember to cover this subject, too. After telling Gideon to build the altar, God then tells him to take the other bull and offer it as a burnt offering, using the wood from the sacred pole for the fire. Gideon did as he was told, using ten of his servants. Then an added detail. He was too afraid of his family and the townspeople to do it by day, so he did all of this at night, presumably that night. When the townspeople woke early the next morning, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the sacred pole beside it was merely a stump. The bull had been offered on the altar, an altar that was probably still standing that morning. The people stood around asking, Who has done this? After searching and probing, they found their answer, Gideon. They then went to his dad. In my head, it was a scene reminiscent of nearly any movie with an angry mob, pitchforks in hand. When they find Joish, they said, Bring out your son so that he may die, for he has pulled down the altar of Baal, and cut down the sacred pole beside it. Joish replied, Will you contend for Baal, or will you defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been pulled down. Because of this episode, Gideon was sometimes called Jerobel, Which translates to, let Baal contend against him. All of this meaning that if Baal had a problem with what Gideon had done, he should do something about it himself. After this, all of the Midianites and Amalekites, along with the still unidentified people of the east, came together, crossed the Jordan, and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. It was then that the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. He sounded the trumpet and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. Little is known about these Abizarites, They are only mentioned in this chapter, and another singular mention two chapters later. They were the descendants of Abizar, the son of Gilead, and there's nothing in the outside record. Back in the text, Gideon would send messengers throughout all of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. When the men of the tribes got the message, they all followed Gibeon to the battlefield, but before the battle were taken down a side street. Gideon tells God, In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I am going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. The next morning, when Gideon checked on the fleece, it was exactly as he had asked for in a positive sign. So much dew that he was able to wring enough water from the fleece to fill a bowl. What can't be forgotten is that this was essentially the desert, and water, let alone dew, was hard to come by. Much like Moses, Gideon needed further reassurance. He spoke to God again asking him to perform the wonder in reverse. He said, Do not let your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Please, make trial with the fleece just once more. Let it be dry only on the fleece, and on all the ground let there be dew. Sure enough, the next morning, that too had come to pass. And that's how chapter 6 ends. With the convincing done, and in Judges 7, the next morning Gideon, who is also referred to here as Jerobel, along with all the troops, got up early and trekked to the spring of Herod, where they camped. This spring of Herod is spelled differently from the New Testament king, and I'll cover it later in this chapter of the podcast. From where they camped, Midian was to their north, and they were situated below the hill of Mora, in the valley. Then, an unexpected twist of the plot, which, now that I think about it, is how most plot twists go. Anyway, God spoke to Gideon, telling him his army was too large. Wait, what? God explained that if they defeated the Midianites with such a large force, they would think they had done it themselves, without the help of God. So, he gives Gideon the next step in the plan telling him to address the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Using this plan, Gideon sorted them out. 22,000 went home, with 10,000 remaining. God spoke up again, as it was still too many. And the next sorting mechanism was among the most visual and curious of methods found in the Old Testament. I'll let the text do the explaining. Gideon brought the men down to a pool of water for hydration. On some things, the text is less than clear. In this case, we don't know if it's a stream, spring, or pool. Not that it matters too much. Then God told Gideon how to divide up the troops. All of those who lap the water with their tongues, as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. And of all those who kneel down to drink cupping their hands and putting them to their mouths, you shall put to the other side. When the sorting was done, there were three hundred that had lapped like a dog, with all the rest using what we'd consider to be more acceptable drinking methods. Then God told Gideon, with these three hundred, the ones that lapped, I will deliver you, and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go to their homes." Gideon then took their jars and trumpets, sending everyone else home. God had Gideon get up in the middle of the night and head down to within earshot of the encamped Midianites, accompanied by only one of his servants. He found that the enemy was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. While he was spying, he heard two Midianite soldiers telling each other that they thought they were going to lose to the Israelites and specifically to Gideon. The story itself involved a dream, a cake, and a tent. But I'm running short on time. You know where to find it. Judges 7. He returned to the camp and readied the troops for battle, handing them their trumpets and jars. In the jars he had the men place torches. He divided the 300 into three companies, He instructs them that when they are just outside the Midianites' camp, they are to listen for his trumpet. When he blows it, they are to blow their own instruments and give a great shout, specifically yelling, For the Lord and for Gideon. The 300 plus Gideon sneaked down to the outskirts of the camp at a time we're told was right after the Midianites had just started their middle watch. This was likely around midnight. The text seems to indicate the Israelites surrounded the enemy. Gideon blew his trumpet, and the men blew theirs. They also all smashed their jars that held the torches. It's a bit unclear if this caused a fire, or merely made a loud sound, or perhaps made the torch brighter. The context is lost. What isn't lost is what happened next. It surely amazed the Israelites as much as it frightened the enemy. They thought they were surrounded by a great force and panicked. The Midianites, along with their allies, beat a hasty retreat as far as Beth in the border of Abomihola. As all of this was unfolding, the Israelite men of Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, essentially the ones that had been sent home earlier, assembled and chased the enemy. The next paragraph lists all of the enemy who were killed, and several items captured as booty. The takeaway is that it was a resounding victory. And that's chapter 7, and a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Judges 8, continuing the narrative about the judge, Gideon. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.